You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. This is your host, Abraham, and I am joined again by Stuart Law. We're going to continue our discussion, so this will be a part two of psychedelics. And last time we talked a lot about history and sort of what what people have used psychedelics for and how they became sort of stigmatized and eventually sort of shut down by the government and that they're now experiencing a re-emergence. And we ended, I think, on a note of caution in terms of we need to be a little bit skeptical. So first I'll say welcome back, Stu. Thanks for joining me again. Yeah. And uh, and actually, I didn't say last time, but this is actually your third time recording with us because we did an episode on uh, humor. We actually recorded a long time ago. I haven't released yet. Although yeah. the time that this comes out, that should be out. So there'll be a lot of stew all in a row. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> humor is more in my wheelhouse than psychedelics. <laughs> psychedelics is only slightly in my wheelhouse. Okay. But, you know. Well, you have a paper coming out. You did a great presentation on it. You know, I think you are the kind of person that would bring to this that appropriate level of skepticism and science and like understanding of the processes. Yeah. As opposed to those who maybe are either too incredulous or too credulous either way the people who are like psychedelics are definitely no we should never use and don't experiment and the people who are like this is going to change everything we should take lsd for a headache and that sort of stuff yeah and it's it's an interesting area because the scientific community everybody is weighing in right like i'm sure there's people who if they heard this and they're familiar with psychedelics and you know there are physicists who are saying things about psychedelics and what it does sort of at the level of physics yeah. There's also, you know, any number of psychological professionals who are approaching this subject and everybody thinks their stance is correct. Sure. But I think it's like politics. <laughs> I think our stance is good. I think that the stance of this the behavioral community is is one that needs to be heard, I think, a little bit. So sure. yeah, as much as I had to do a lot of research and dig in and this isn't something that I do every day, I do think that, you know, my training and history has prepared me for this kind of discussion. Yeah, and ultimately, that was why I wanted to invite you to be part of this. I mean, one is because I had access to being able to record with <laughs> sure, you. Sure. But really, also, was just there was not a more perfect person to approach this with the right balance. Because knowing that you tend to feel good things about psychedelics in terms of like enjoying them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also, more importantly, being as much of a scientist and a skeptic as you are and, and being able to sort of I guess, balance and compare those things appropriately. Yeah, yeah. I get it, but also chill out, you know? (laughs) (laughs) A lot of this discussion is going to be around sort of the process by which this works, what there is to be optimistic about and skeptical about. But let's actually, let's start with that note of skepticism in terms of what do we need to look out for? Yeah, so I laid out in the paper a list of things that I think we need to be cautious about. And I lay those out, you know, just by contacting this community and by listening to other podcasts and television shows and documentaries and books. And there's a couple things that I came up with that I think I'm, I'm worried about as a logic for justifying psychedelics as a treatment. Okay. The first of these is like an appeal to ancient wisdom, right? So there is this kind of thing that was even discussed in the first episode, right? When in discussing the history, there's a kind of man, it's been around for a long time, therefore it must have some kind of utility, otherwise it wouldn't be around anymore. Yeah. And I think that's, it's a interesting idea, and I don't think you should dismiss it out of hand completely, 
But also, you know, there are practices that existed for thousands of years that were horrible and yeah. they were terrible ideas. Yeah. <laughs> One of them being like trepanning. Yeah. Right? So trepanning is this idea that the psychedelic community has picked up on in a dangerous mm-hmm. way. Sure. I would say. So trepanning is this practice of drilling a hole in your head. Yeah. Essentially. And they're right? kind of big too. They're, yeah. It's about the size of a silver dollar if those are still around. Yeah. <laughs> so let's say for metric people, it's maybe like three centimeters across, maybe an inch and a half or two if you're using imperial yeah, system. Yeah. It's a decent sized hole yeah and, and it's right in your skull like <laughs> yeah it's just right in there yeah i mean it is it, somebody drill you know and this practice has been around for a long time you can trace it back to the ancient egyptians western european cultures engaged in trepanning for psychological dysfunction of the time mm-hmm. you know and uh, maybe it works maybe you know i don't know i'm not willing to kind of explore that area um, yeah i'm a little close-minded in that, in that. well i don't know it would be hard to justify what kind of pros you could get relative to the cons in that one. Sure. I get off that train at the level of how they're justifying it. There's this kind of idea that when you're a little kid, I mean, this is at least one way that I've heard it justified. Okay. When you're a little kid, you're creative. You're like, your mind is expanding, like mm-hmm. quite literally, right? Yeah. Your brain is growing yeah. and therefore your mind is expanding. Okay. And on some level, your brain growing provides you access to more creative behavior. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah. I think little kids are not that creative. They, <laughs> you know, I just don't think like a, di- a dinosaur with machine gun arms is like that creative. You know what I mean? Most cartoons that are worth watching most material that you consume it comes out of the mind of an adult yeah like most books worth reading (laughs) you know like there aren't a lot of materials out there where truly there's enough you know creativity takes a level of coherence right Mm -hmm. it takes a level of like this has to make sense at some degree but it also has to be a little it has to push your boundaries right it has to stretch the relations that you're familiar with and that isn't something little kids are really that good at. We give them a lot of credit for it when yeah. they're like, look, it's, you know, it's a superhero who shoots ants out of his eyes. But like, <laughs> I just, you know, you can come up with this stuff just randomly too, if you allow yourself to. And so I think already I'm a little off this train. <laughs> <Little> of, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't like this idea that, you know, and th- there's also this kind of mechanistic literal it's an overextension of the brain, not as an entity, but as a metaphor, right? Okay. If the brain is growing metaphorically, we're more creative. Mm-hmm. And the literally the idea of trepanning to some is that if you allow your brain room to breathe and grow, that you will contact more creative and helpful thoughts. And that logic is enough to get me off of that idea pretty quickly. So we were cursed with these capacity limiting skulls of ours if only we had bigger heads right yeah and so you know the way around getting a bigger head is drilling a hole such that it can grow a little bit more man so it's kind of a bananas idea as far (laughs) as i'm concerned but there you know there are people advocating for like we want to have access to surgeries you know and that's always kind of a tricky thing because you don't want people doing this at home but also as a doctor do no harm probably means don't drill holes in people's heads for no reason, <laughs> yeah. you know? So this kind of appeal to ancient wisdom, I think there are plenty of examples of times where that kind of logic has led to not only not helpful areas, but harmful areas. Yeah. We actually, at the time that this is released, we will have just recently published an episode on 
tapping meridian points, which also is, I guess, informed in a way by sort of ancient wisdom. Right. And is about as effective as just pretend. Yeah. But yeah. Cool. So what else do we need to be considered about with respect to our, our skepticism moving forward? So there's a kind of understanding, and this one is incredibly common. And I will sort of hopefully discuss why I think it's common. Okay. But and I think there's a specific reason. Well, if there, you know, as much as there's a reason for anything, there is a kind of mechanism that we think is responsible for this. But a second thing to sort of look out for to be skeptical of in the psychedelic community is this idea that psychedelic substances are sort of these hyper intelligent agents. Mm. They're often given agency unto themselves so that in that stoned ape theory that we discussed in part one, there's this kind of understanding that mushrooms are like caretakers of the earth. Not only was it just that apes, you know, discovered these mushrooms that just so happened to have these properties. Mm-hmm. It's that like mother nature may actually be like mushrooms. Okay. These mushrooms. Right. And they're sort of pulling the strings on humanity. Wow. Yeah. So there's this kind of idea that they, they, they soak in knowledge and then they impart knowledge into our mushy minds that don't really know anything. Okay. And it blows our mind quite literally because they've just soaked (laughs) up this knowledge through osmosis. Right. (laughs) And they, you know, and that can come from many places. People will put that in nature, right? Mm-hmm. So some people will say, like, that's actually, you know, that's nature or that's God. Or there's an idea that aliens planted mushrooms or they put these substances on Earth sure. such that when a species was ready to sort of take that next step, they would catalyze that next step, if you will. Got it. And so that stoned ape theory and all those kinds of ideas sort of suggest, you know, These things are hyper intelligent, smarter than us, a lot smarter than us. And the mushrooms themselves. Yeah. And we can only hope to like sort of understand what they're bringing to the table. Got it. And it's a really dangerous idea. And boy, it is present in just everything. It is the psychedelic community is steeped in this idea that, you know, aliens put these things here or you can receive messages from God if you take psychedelics. That's what these things really are. Okay. All right. So. How are these things dangerous then? Well, this idea to me is is dangerous because there's a lot of things that sound sort of scientific sure. that can come out of this idea. You know, you can have a particle physicist who says, yeah, yeah, these particles are special and they have special powers, right? Mm-hmm. But I think the level of analysis is psychological. Mm-hmm. It is an organism experiencing an event. Okay. That's, that's where the expertise, I think, is. And so there's a lot of people who are scientists, right? They might study, you know, physics and they have a particular interest in psychedelic substances. And now all of a sudden these things are transporting us to other dimensions of reality, right? And so, for example, when people take DMT, they often encounter what they describe as like other species, right? They often encounter okay. these other... Like they see them? Yeah, yeah. Like they'll halluc- be hallucinating these other beings and okay. they've been described and so you know there's a quote from a book on what's called alien information theory and the guy says you know when we come to encounter these other beings and he calls them soul transforming machinomes 
right? Which just sounds like, it sounds like a term that somebody who's done a lot of mushrooms would say. (laughs) I mean, and so he says some people who are skeptics, they, they see these soul transforming machinomes and they, they don't, they just think they're hallucinations. But what I think as a physicist is that these beings exist and they're real and maybe they're made of dark matter. And the only way to access these dark matter beings is through an altered state of consciousness. Well, if you put the word maybe in front of it, then it sounds perfectly legitimate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, you know, that's that's the kind of idea that people are chasing. Even, you know, and these are not what might be called natural scientists to some, right? Like being a physicist, you're you're you might study this kind of stuff mm-hmm. and you encounter this other substance. And now you're talking about soul transforming machinomes. <laughs> and it's a little alarming. That's a scientist who now just sounds like somebody who just got back from Burning Man to an extent, right? And those ideas are coming together in a way that I don't really think is helpful. I mean, it could be the case that we contact soul-transforming machinomes, but, you know, I think even at that, these are guesses at best, and calling them things like soul-transforming machinomes isn't doing a whole lot for the scientific community. Yeah, I mean, we've talked a number of times about the concept of parsimony being that, you know, what is the thing that requires <laughs> yeah, the biggest yeah, think, number of assumptions? Yeah, I would say that the parsimonious answer is you have a person who's tripping. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're just kind of, you know, interacting with things that are probably not there in the sense that this physicist is claiming. Yeah, I mean, an explanation can be virtually anything at all that you can think of, and that doesn't make it a legitimate like answer to a question you know it's and that's the whole idea of this idea of parsimony is that it's not just that you can create a plausible scenario by which this could take place but instead like what makes the most sense given what we do know about how things work and like yeah we're probably wrong in some way here and there and that's what science does is figure out how we're wrong all the time but it's a less wrong than like, we'll just make it up. And, you know, I used the example recently of like, we've got a, a flying invisible unicorn that controls everything we do. I'm like, you mm-hmm. can't prove it wrong, but that doesn't tell us anything about like, first of all, that doesn't make any sense. Also, like there, there's no conceptual reason for us to believe that that's the case. Right. And it doesn't fit inside of anything else we understand about how the universe works. I literally just made it up, but I can't prove it wrong. Cause it's just a thing that I said. So yeah, that whole idea of just, if we're going to lean that heavily into something like, another dimension being that is invisible and intangible to us, but we somehow open that dimension by Mm -hmm. taking, ingesting a drug is a stretch to me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And these things, you know, in exploring psychedelics as a treatment for things, I think this affects psychological professionals and how they interact with the substances. So, you know, it, with this sort of, I think, misunderstanding of psychedelic substances as this kind of hyper intelligent catalyst i think you you see that in how people are treating other people by saying like the medicine they'll say things like the medicine knows what you need Mm. and so as a psychologist that's alarming to me right to just leave it to take it out of the hands of the therapist or the person who is supposed to know what the next steps are what the next kinds of treatment are and to say you know no, no, no. Just like, let's leave it in the hands of the medicine. And even to call it medicine at this point, I think is not a good idea. Yeah. It's sort of like the psychological equivalent of like, Jesus, take the wheel. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't think he's going to drive you anywhere you want to go. You know, it, there's a kind of common sense that's built into that, right? Which is like you as the therapist, you're not trying to overly control this process. And yeah. I, I understand that 
at, at a superficial level, right? Like, sure. you know, get the person ready, you know, so in a lot of psychedelic assisted therapies, there's a lot of discussion of set and setting. Yeah. I so to bring that up. it's kind of worrisome to some extent that that often falls by the wayside. Mm -hmm. And if mushrooms or psychedelics in general are these sort of hyper intelligent agents, then why does set and setting matter? Why yeah. does it matter that you have to actually prepare pretty extensively for these kinds of experiences? You don't just want to like go into it. I think there's enough, you know, just anecdotal evidence there, psychedelics have been around a long time. And I think if they had a profound effect on psychological dysfunction, we would know by now, if you could just take a bunch of psychedelics home, pop them, you know, and have your, have your friend babysit you for a little bit, <laughs> then we would know, we would know, you know, and certainly would be at least more evidence to that effect. One would think. Yeah. And in the seventies, you know, people got left in the dirt. People ended up on the street and, mm -hmm. you know, psychedelics have done harm and under certain conditions, they will do harm again. And the kinds of conditions that need to be present for these things to be effective, I think are kind of clear. Yeah. And so to say things like the medicine knows what you need, I think is dangerous and irresponsible at this point. And it comes from this place of like, no, 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 these things know better than you. They know better than us. They are the they are the carriers of the world's information. Yeah. Which I don't think is a great idea. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't it's one of those things where it doesn't make a lot of sense. And I just want to clarify when you say the set and setting that has to do with the idea that the expectations you have going into it, sort of the frame of mind you're in going into it, and then the situation you find yourself in which you're imbibing or, you know, yeah. taking in for some in some whatever way you're taking it, these psychedelics, that is going to be a critical variable in the kind of experience you're gonna have when you take those, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, that means really environmental design matters a lot, but also mm -hmm. preparation, you know, the kinds of things you're telling a patient coming into that experience are going to really, some of the things you might accidentally say might, you know, they might cling on to these ideas in a way that might not be useful. Right. And so the things you're saying and the environment that's present isn't gone when right. these psychedelic when you're under the influence of psychedelics, it's not as though you're transported to another planet. You're still interacting with present stimuli yeah you know one example hypothetically speaking uh, <laughs> is like you know a person i don't i don't know who but like you might fall in love with a bottle of sprite okay like, for example right just like, some random person yeah yeah like, some random hypothetical person hypothetically really could, never actually happened could fall in love with a bottle of sprite and you know sprite being there you can't predict that the person is going to fall in love with a bottle of Sprite, like literally be in love with Sprite and be like pouring it on themselves <laughs> <laughs> or like crying because their straw is too short and they can't reach it. Like, those things are, are weird. They're certainly yeah. weird. Right. But I would argue that's already enough to shut down this like idea that psychedelics are these hyper intelligent agents. Yeah. Like Sprite is not something to be in love with. <laughs> but you know that's something that is present in that person's environment and they're interacting with it in a way and your job as the sort to provide the set and setting is then to kind of roll with that and turn it into something meaningful turn it into something metaphorical yeah. that the person can then sort of use i've heard that's very important with the ayahuasca specifically and that's why they have guides that do it because you need someone to sort of be there who knows what they're doing to help guide that experience so yeah, that it's not and, a super aversive one. And not only as it's occurring, well, and it, that it's aversive isn't necessarily even that bad. Mm -hmm. 
that it's aversive is almost expected. Sure. You know, in the preparation portions of this kind of treatment, you'll see a lot of like some stuff about this experience is going to really suck and (laughs) you're going to have to kind of lean into it. Mm -hmm. Right. Which is something that makes it a good fit for acceptance and commitment therapy. Sure. This kind of idea like that something is hard doesn't make it bad. Mm -hmm. Right. And so in a lot of these experiences, having a bad experience might actually predict a good outcome Mm. uh, in terms of uh, what it produces, but it's what the person's doing with that and how they interpret it. And there's, you know, there's probably several days afterwards that the people need to sort of break down what's going on. Right. And I think there's a level to which that could just be nonsense dream interpretation stuff. Yeah. But some of it could actually be really useful if you can metaphorically think about something. You know, it's just words. I get it. But those words can help you move forward with something that you've been kind of wrestling with. I think that can be helpful. Yeah. In the context of a larger therapeutic picture, it's not going to be just, you know, years and years of therapy overnight. It's not going to be that it's going to be part of a larger therapeutic picture. It sounds like more than anything, what to expect from psychedelics is tremendously augmenting what's going on for you in a t- particular situation. It's like take everything that you're there and you can something is going to be blown way bigger than it currently is. Yeah, I think that's fair to say, and the preparations can be different. So some people will make you like put on blindfolds and things like that. And wow. so, and we'll play music. And so and there, you know, in terms of the set and setting, you really only have like what you prepared the person with right? and the music. And a lot of it's just going to be sort of quote unquote inner behavior, right? Okay. They're going to be interacting with their own language to such an extent that those kinds of hallucinations can be really extreme. Mm-hmm. So like they could, you know, do things like get eaten by a snake. Okay. But the good news about those kinds of experiences is often with the blindfolds, you can hit the pause button on those kinds of experiences. So okay. you could take a pause from like this experience of being eaten by a snake and have to go to the bathroom and you can take the blindfold off and you can kind of navigate like I'm me again and Mm -hmm. I'm here. And so I'm going to take a whiz. Those kinds of things do occur and you can sort of control like, okay, this is getting a little too intense. We need to break down what's going on. But to some extent you kind of just want to have the person write it out. Right. So what's commonly reported in these psychedelic experiences is that, is on the other side of really aversive events like being eaten by a snake, the therapist will be encouraging the person to like move towards the snake's mouth. Like, go okay. get eaten. It's yeah. going to be awesome in there. Trust me. <laughs> uh, and it often kind of is awesome yeah. in there. And, you know, in terms of the everyday use, if you had a friend who was trying to do this just at home, they're going to give you bad advice often, yeah. right? They're going to tell you like, oh my God, that's really scary. <laughs> like, and then you're going to be more scared. Like, and, oh, wait a minute. I didn't think I was scary. <laughs> oh man. And you know, I've personally had that experience where I can see how the person that, that was trying to help me was actually doing more harm than good Yeah. by not teaching sort of those acceptance moves of like move towards the thing that sucks, move yeah. towards the thing that's aversive you know, they're freaking out with me, right? They're like, oh my God, a snake, that sounds terrible. You should get away from that thing. You should see something else, right? And so having some expertise clearly is important Mm -hmm. and set and setting to those who've done this treatment. They understand that there's a kind of training and a kind of knowledge that needs to occur in parallel with these treatments in order to do it responsibly. And this idea that, you know, the medicine knows what you need, I think is a dangerous one. Okay, so then I think that's a really good point to segue into sort of how this works or how it could work 
and just through the process of of how this might be useful what what is there to be optimistic about i guess there's a lot of so, stuff to throw at you sorry i think there's a there's a reason why we tend to give psychedelic substance uh, psychedelic substances these kind of hyper intelligent agent kind of status mm -hmm. and i think it has to do with alterations to sort of our self-perception right okay. which as we sort of talked about in part one is at least in part a function of language right so we can language about ourselves in mm -hmm. these particular ways and so act therapy sort of talks about these selves and these aren't selves as literal nouns they're processes so okay. i'm going to use the term like self but i don't mean that there's like a little person inside of you i mean okay. it's a shorthand for like a repertoire of behaving in certain verbal ways yeah so you know you there's sort of the ongoing process of self right sort of like the just it's the orientation to the idea that i have a self and that that is an ongoing experience that we have but we also kind of orient to that in a particular way through most of the time of right. like i am me here now and that's different from all other things like i am not you or anybody else right i'm just me and that when that gets disrupted very radical difference yeah it is and you know i think again we forget that this isn't just we didn't always understand this but mm -hmm. we had to kind of like people had to teach us you are you and i am me and it is now and it's not then mm -hmm. and you know you're here you're not there that's at least in part rooted in kind of linguistic functions. Yeah, it's sort of a theory of mind thing. Right. And so people in ACT Therapy talk about this as kind of your three selves, right? Okay. And so you have, you have the self that experiences, right? So you have this process of being able to language about current events. So I might language, you know, I might say like, oh man, I got like a sniffly nose or I hope people aren't annoyed with my voice on this podcast, <laughs> right? Like okay. hypothetically, people might, you know. <laughs> You might sit, just think that to yourself, right? You're, sure. you're thinking about yourself in the current moment, trying to be sort of aware of like what's happening with you. Okay. So that's one self. We call that the experiential self or self as process. Okay. There's another self, which is sort of this conceptualized self, which is, you know, I may look back at my history and I might think like, I'm a decent husband, not great, you know, like, <laughs> and so I can look back at my own history, my own behavior, and I can sort of infer things about like how I conceptualize myself. Okay. Right. Like I'm a mediocre lover, <laughs> you know, whatever, those kinds of things. So this is more of the like, this is the self in terms of or is what you're saying about this, like the evaluation of who you are, sort of the critical. Yeah. OK. Those are pieces of it, but also not even necessarily evaluative, but okay. just like historical. OK. Right. So a descriptive you know, like this is I don't like I shorts as a person. OK. Right. You know, Got could it. also be there's not necessarily a built in evaluation, but it's a self-reflection in a way where you're looking upon your own history and trying to make some kind of determination. Okay. And then there's a third self that we call this sort of perspective taking self, which okay. is also often called uh, self as context. And this self is like you actually, you know, taking a step back from all of that and looking down upon it. Okay. Right. As though, so I can see, like, I think about myself as a person who says he doesn't like shorts. I can see myself evaluating myself right in terms of when people listen to this are they going to judge me i can see myself having that thought mm -hmm. does that make sense yeah so there's this kind of way to transcend all of that and to look down upon your own behavior and your own self-reflection and evaluate it from that perspective and that's commonly called this third self this perspective taking self or self as context 
And this seems to be something that's altered by psychedelic substances. Okay. So famously, Aldous Huxley, he recounts this experience in his book, uh, The Doors of Perception. And you can see the alterations to like hereness, nowness, thenness, meanness, right? Okay. So here's the actual quote. He says, the legs, for example, of that chair, how miraculous their tubularity, how supernatural their polished smoothness. I spent several minutes, or was it centuries, not merely gazing at those bamboo legs, but actually being them, or rather being myself in them, or to be more accurate, for I was not involved in the, any case, nor in a certain sense were they, being my not-self in the not-self, which was the chair. Wow. Right, And so he, you can sort of... It's like language sort of breaks down when you try and extract yourself that much from yourself. Right. And so he can, to some extent, is languaging in ways. I think if you were to ask him in that moment, like, point to you, I don't think he would point to the chair. Yeah. So I, I don't think it's entirely broken down. I yeah. don't think these things are fully, but certainly some elements of meanness are mm -hmm. to be found in the environment and some elements of thereness. And, you know, so certainly these language functions are distinctly different. So like the way you think about yourself in relation to other things is the distinction's just not that clear anymore. I'm going to think of like myself and that thing over there. We're all sort of part of this big cosmic soup and yeah. like, it's not really important to make that this huge distinction. Like my value wasn't necessarily greater than that thing over there anymore. Right. And so this kind of makes sense, right? So we talked earlier about this sort of precautionary tale of this thing as this supernatural agent that yeah. enters your body. But what if really you're just speaking to yourself in disguise? Yeah. What if this, you know, self as context is speaking to you and you don't recognize it as that? And I don't I don't see how it could be anything else. Nothing is there that wasn't there before. Right. Except these alterations to language functions. Mm -hmm. And so you're seeing yourself and you're speaking to yourself, but you also think you're God right? <laughs> to some extent, or you think that you're the chair or you think that aliens have sort of, you know, transported you into another body. These kinds of things have a kind of sense to them that when you come out of it, you're like, oh, my gosh, that must have been transcendent. That mm -hmm. must have been something supernatural. Yeah. And so it sort of makes sense that this this idea that psychedelics are these supernatural substances sort of from a languaging perspective the kinds of things that it alters it makes sense that you would come away with that understanding and it's yeah. a really difficult thing to kind of resist right it's difficult to resist this idea that you got this message from god and people talk about this as i don't like this term but it's commonly used it has a noetic quality so okay and this uh, noetic quality i don't like it because it's a noun and it sort of turns it into this a thing but it tends to be the case that you look upon yourself and you you can say things that may seem otherwise like just these platitudes, just like cliches that you okay. might find on like a poster. Yeah. And you might not respond to them in a way that you see them as profound. Right. So you might interact with the phrase love is everything. Yeah. Michael Pollan wrote a book and he talks about a, a similar experience. The change your mind. But, yeah. How yeah. to change your mind. He talks about. He interacted with this phrase, love is everything, and he was sort of talking to someone else about his experience, and he said, what did you learn? You know, Michael Pollan had taken some psychedelics as sort of a journalistic experience, and he... Sure. <laughs> he sort of said, like, I learned It's in the name love. of research, I swear. <laughs> I, learned, I learned love is everything. Okay. And the guy's like, well, I mean, cool, what else did you learn, right? And he's just sort of moving on because that's just something you might find in a Hallmark card, yeah. right? That's not interesting to him. Yeah. But Michael Pollan, having gone through this experience, was like, no, 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 I'm going to slow that down. Like, 
love is everything right and, everything <laughs> yeah and he sort of and he sort of rec- says in his book like i recognize that sounds stupid to you i get it i totally understand why that sounds stupid it sounds stupid to me too yeah but also i felt that in a way that felt truthful mm-hmm. right I, I experienced that in a way that was different than i'm experiencing it now and i can only put it in terms of that experience got it and so there's a kind of like these things are still true despite my recognizing that they sound silly mm-hmm. right to other people and that's interesting because it's not true of other substances right mm-hmm. so like you know it's often the case that you're drunk or you've smoked marijuana and you have a thought that you think is really profound you know? yeah <laughs> and it could be something kind of similar right and right. you and you write that thought down and then you come back to that thought when you're sober and you're like wow i was really high um, and you know but what seems to be somewhat unique about psychedelics is that with these alterations to these languaging functions, you still buy into what you were thinking at the time. Sure. Right. So there's a kind of you're still like, yeah, yeah, no, no. I know it sounds stupid, but that's true. And that's that noetic mm-hmm. quality. You're right. And about. so people often in this community talk about those kinds of experiences being a, attaching a noetic quality to certain language functions. Got it. So you come out of it thinking there's a kind of underlying master truth to that idea. Got it. Okay, so that conversation ended up running longer than we had originally thought that it would. So I decided to break in here and split this into a separate episode. So instead of finishing the conversation here, we will actually transition to part three. So we'll say that concludes this particular part of the discussion. Tune in next week for the last and remaining part of this discussion on psychedelics with Stu Law. If you have any questions, you can always reach us at info at www.podcast.com. And please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. This is Abraham. We're out. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at WWD Podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.